The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. Amen. Good evening. Welcome back, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, thank you, brothers, for praying for us and uh, leading us in prayer. Very grateful for that. Appreciate my brother leading us in singing tonight, too. That was nice. Uh, it's good to be able to come and to sing hymns with you and pray with you. I uh, love our Sunday evening worship together. Uh, it's also a joy because we're back in the book of Revelation tonight, so I'm looking forward to this. Uh, Revelation chapter 5, if you look at that text up in your Bibles. The title of our sermon tonight is Who is Worthy? Who is Worthy? And we're considering... Uh, the second part, second half, if you will, of John's throne room vision in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. Revelation 4 and 5 both form a, a single unit. And in chapter 5, uh, the, the focus narrows, uh, the plot, as it were, um, slows down a bit, and John uh, sees, his attention is drawn to a scroll in the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And so the scene... Uh, um, develops now with the Lord Jesus Christ coming on the scene in Re- uh, Revelation chapter 5 and taking the scroll. And so I'm looking forward to going through this with you. Uh, tonight, we just want to basically, I uh, want to give some background. Um, it's helpful in going forward from this point in Revelation to understand when this takes place and what the context of this scene is. And so we want to look at several texts tonight that develop that, the specific context and the specific chronology. Once we have the chronology set, uh, we'll look at chronology several times as as we work through the book of Revelation. But once we understand this chronology, then we understand where we're at in the progress of Revelation as we work through the book. Uh, so it's going to help us tonight to look at some background, and then we'll continue working through this uh, chapter, chapter 5, in the coming three or four weeks. So uh, our text tonight, Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. I'll read our text together, we'll pray, and then dig into God's Word. The book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. One of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, this is the word of God. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. 
Uh, Father in heaven, Lord, we are so grateful to you for this scene in Revelation 5 and uh, this vision that you've given John, this revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ that you've given us. Uh, thank you, Lord, for disclosing this to us. And thank you, Lord, for, for uh, what this communicates to us, uh, what we're going to learn from this text. Uh, be with us, Lord, as we study your word and uh, apply it to our understanding. Help us to understand what's going on here. And uh, we understand, Lord, that uh, eschatology can be uh, difficult. Uh, it can be challenging to work through the text involved, but I pray, Lord, you'd bless our effort, bless our study together, uh, bless those who are here, Lord, who have come to uh, consider um, this magnificent book. Uh, and Lord, I, I pray that by your spirit, you would apply it in our lives, that during this time, this time of the church's tribulation, that we would live wholeheartedly for you, uh, zealous uh, for the work of your kingdom, zealous for our Lord Jesus Christ, persevering as faithful witnesses in a dark place as lights shining atop the lampstands. Uh, we love you. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for our time together. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of our sermon this evening, Who is Worthy? Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Uh, so it's a joy to be back with you in this book. Uh, I missed you guys uh, last week going through this with you, so I'm looking forward to tonight. We're back in the book of Revelation, and in Revelation, now as we come to chapter 5 tonight, uh, John, as we know, in consideration of chapter 4, John has been transported in the Spirit, as it were, through a door standing open in heaven. And he's been called up now to write the things that he sees there. And as John is transported, it's as though we're transported with him. We get to see uh, this scene in heaven through the pen of John, as it were, uh, and use our sanctified imagination as we consider uh, all that is depicted there. The words on the page uh, employ our imagination, uh, if you will, as we consider the throne, the throne room of God, and the one who is seated upon the throne. It calls for us to imagine this scene, and our imaginations are always going to fall short. But we can't help but as we think through the text and listen to the words spoken of engaging our imagination and considering the scene together. Uh, we ourselves, with the Apostle John here, are drawn into the worship of the one who is seated on the throne in the throne room. Uh, those around the throne, those in the midst of the throne, as they sing hymns of praise uh, to the Lord of glory who's seated on the throne and to the Lamb, we get to uh, participate in that worship with them, as it were, as we consider the scene together. The words that John uses as he describes the scene are certainly true to what he sees. This is an important point I want us to consider. As John writes what he sees, the words that he's using are true and an accurate, obviously an accurate de depiction of what he sees. But because John is exceedingly familiar with his Bible, in particular his Old Testament scriptures, and the same scene depicted in other places in the Bible, in particular the Old Testament prophets like we've seen in the past, uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, namely, John, not only using word, his own words to describe the scene that he's seeing, he's also calling from Old Testament texts uh, words, texts that come to mind for the Apostle John that also depict the same scene, and he's drawing on that Revelation uh, to depict now the scene that we see in Revelation chapter 5. Uh, he's drawing parallels. He's drawing connections to those Old Testament texts. And so what we see then as we looked at Revelation chapter 4 already is John drawing from Isaiah. Isaiah's in the throne room. He sees the Lord high and lifted up on his throne, that the train of his robe filling the temple, and Isaiah's undone. And so as John sees this 
essentially the same scene, the throne room of God in heaven, John draws upon language from Isaiah chapter 6 to inform our understanding of what John is seeing in Revelation chapter 4. Or Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 2 or Ezekiel chapter 10, describing the throne of God and the the precious stones and the wheels, the flames of fire. Um, John, seeing essentially the same kind of scene, understanding that text very well, draws upon those images from Ezekiel to inform our understanding here, Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, uh, for what he is seeing in his vision, a vision of essentially the same scene. He relies heavily now on Daniel. The Bible, what this tells us is that the Bible is essentially a unified whole. The Bible is a unified whole. It's a, a connected unified, progressive revelation. And drawing upon those Old Testament texts, John demonstrates how revelation becomes the capstone of the canon. Uh, What is being revealed in Revelation is the capstone, if you will, of all the revelation that has come before and is a progressive revelation of what has come before, connected to what has come before. So how this revelation discloses then the ultimate fulfillment of the person and work of Jesus Christ, uh, how the sum and substance of all the scripture points to and terminates in him, that becomes the subject now of John's revelation or of the book of the revelation. It really is about how all of scripture points to Jesus Christ and how all of scripture is fulfilled or terminates, points to him. Uh, Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 5 is no exception. Both chapters fit together as a complete vision if you will, of the throne room in heaven. Uh, Both together together give us a a glorious picture of the sovereign God in authoritative rule over creation and in rule over his church, uh, ruling with sovereign authority while enthroned in worship. Now, the central figure of Revelation 4 and 5 is the one who is seated upon the throne. He's our central figure. He's described in in unimaginable splendor, uh, radiance, astonishing beauty, uh, depicted in precious stones and a rainbow of emerald, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, wheels of fire, lamps burning, the heavenly council representing creation, the heavenly council representing the the church, uh, Old Testament and New Testament saints. Uh, They're in continuous worship, the four living creatures, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The 24 elders representing the entirety of the church as they worship, they're called into worship. They cast their crowns before him. They fall on their face. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And Ezekiel describes a similar scene, a similar vision. Uh, as the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's a magnificent scene, isn't it? It's a magnificent, a magnificent scene. And it's a scene described by John as he is both witnessing the scene and at the same time recalling that same scene depicted in the visions of the prophets, namely Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 2, Ezekiel chapter 10, and namely, in particular, Daniel chapter 7. So as he's describing the scene, he's witnessing the scene, and that scripture is coming to his mind as he's witnessing uh, what's going on in the throne room. Revelation 4 and 5 are filled with references from those prophets, but in particular, references, allusions, and echoes to Daniel chapter 7. And it's apparent from the text of Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 that our text is providing another perspective or 
an interpretive perspective of Daniel chapter 7, the vision given to Daniel and recorded in Daniel chapter 7. So chapter 4 introduces us to that central figure who's seated upon the throne. He's exalted in praise. And chapter 5 then draws us in for a closer look where John sees in his right hand a scroll. And this sets the scene, if you will, for one of the greatest moments in all of recorded history. This is awesome what takes place in Revelation chapter 5. A strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. Behold, there is one worthy. Amen? There is one worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And that should, that should get us excited. <laughs> As we think about that scene, it gets me excited. As we think about that scene and we, think, and we understand, we'll understand more tonight working through the text, understand what's going on here. It's supposed to get us excited. Uh, it's supposed to, to, to enliven or fuel or inflame our affections. The language of the text and the depiction of the scene is meant not merely to inform our understanding, right? If that were the case, uh, we would read the Bible, like I said earlier, like a, a, a textbook, you know, or a schematic. We'd have a list of propositional statements, a list of indicatives, a list of imperatives, and that's the, ba- the way that this would be uh, revealed to us. But that's not the way that the Bible's written. The Bible is written in this beautiful imagery with, with uh, these uh, moving stories and these accounts that are intended by God to engage our heart. As our minds are engaged, understanding what's going on, our hearts are to be engaged. So uh, we, this should cause us to exult in the captain of our salvation, right? This should cause us to, to revel, revel in what Jesus Christ has accomplished and what is ours in union with him. Uh, this should cause us to be joyful, uh, exuberant, right? Enthusiastic in our worship, as we praise and worship the one seated upon the throne and we praise the lamb forever and ever. So to appreciate that scene then, a scene that we're gonna get into um, more in in detail next week, in order to appreciate the drama uh, of the throne room on that particular day, a day which has already taken place, um, we first have to understand the context and the chronology of Revelation chapter 5. So that's our objective tonight as we look at this text together. In the text of Revelation 4 and 5, we have the scene depicted. Right? The Ancient of Days is seated upon the throne in glory. The heavenly council erupts in worship. Uh, John's attention is drawn to a book in his right hand, a biblion in his right hand, and suddenly the throne room becomes quiet. As a strong angel then proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And the lion of the tribe of Judah steps on the scene, having prevailed to open the scroll. Now, when we have to ask the question, when is this taking place? And what is the context of this event? This is critical to our understanding of Revelation as a whole. So we've got to understand when this is taking place and the context of these events. And the way to do that is by looking at the text of Scripture. So fasten your seatbelts, hang in there with me, and let's look at some text together. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Let's start, we're going to start with Revelation chapter 12. What to keep in mind as we're considering these texts, that we're establishing the timing of these events, the context or the chronology of these events. And that's going to become very important as we work through the book of Revelation, Um, especially as we get now from Revelation 5 into 6 and 7, moving forward, okay? 
So Revelation 12 is where we're going to begin. Look at verse 1 with me. And we're, we're familiar with this text. This is a text that I've referred to uh, multiple times because this gives, gives us a good biblical theological overview of these events as they take place. And it provides for us here a good chronology. Verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. As we work through Revelation chapter 12, we realize that this woman certainly represents Mary, Mary giving birth to a male child, but also represents the church, represents Old Testament saints, the garland of 12 stars around her head, certainly representative of the 12 tribes of Israel, and also, as we'll see, she goes into the wilderness, she has offspring, she's representative also of the church. So we'll look at that when we get to Revelation 12 in more detail. Being with child, verse 2, this woman cried out in labor, in pain, to give birth. Verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon. We find out later in Revelation 12 that this dragon is Satan. Satan. Having seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, ready to devour her child as soon as it was born. Satan plotted to have the Lord Jesus Christ killed, the Messiah killed uh, as he was born. Verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Who was the male child that was born to Mary Christ, who uh, was born, if you will, to also to Israel, uh, the 12 tribes uh, from the tribe of Judah. Uh, And this male child was to rule the nations with a rod of iron, verse 5, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This is a reference in verse 5 to the bodily ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. When was the Lord Jesus Christ caught up to heaven and to the throne? At his ascension. So after the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, the Lord Jesus Christ was buried, the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and 40 days later, the Lord Jesus Christ ascended bodily into heaven. Verse 6, then upon his ascension, upon the bodily ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, the woman fled into the wilderness where she, was, she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now, think with me. You've got to think through these details. Upon the bodily ascension of Jesus Christ, what happens in Jerusalem? Great persecution breaks out. Stephen is the first martyr. He preaches uh, in the temple. Uh, Stephen is killed, and it says that the Jews were dispersed. They went everywhere, and they went everywhere preaching the gospel. Now, this was the, dis- the, the great diaspora, the dispersion of the church. So what did the, what did the woman, the woman representing the people of God, woman now representing the church, what does she do? She flees into the wilderness. She flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that God is going to provide for her there for 1,260 days. Now, if you're familiar with Daniel, that 1,260 days is referenced in Daniel. That's equivalent to times, time, and half a time, three and a half years. And so when the woman flees into the wilderness, the time, the clock begins, if you will, on that 1260 days, which is the first half of Daniel's 70th week. We're going to get there. We'll look at that uh, later as we're working through Revelation. That's a reference to Daniel's 70th week. In other words, as the woman is in the wilderness, as the church is in the wilderness, and the church is being persecuted by the dragon, 
They're being persecuted by the dragon during the first half of Daniel's 70th week. The first half of Daniel's 70th week, then, is the church age. And what biblical theology does is what God does by telling us this, revealing this to us in Revelation 12, is he causes us to look back at Daniel's prophecy and see Daniel's prophecy of a 70th week and the first half of that 70th week and connect Daniel's prophecy of a 70th week to this event that takes place in Revelation 12. Do you see? It connects those two things. First half of Daniel's 70th week is the church age, the woman in the wilderness, the dragon persecuting her offspring. Do you see? Okay. Then, verse 7, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. If you're familiar with texts like Job, for example, Satan strolls in (laughs) uh, to heaven uh, like he's been there all along (laughs) and has this conversation with God about Job. In other words, Satan has access to heaven. After the bodily ascension of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ takes the throne. Uh, Revelation 12 depicts this war that breaks out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with Satan, the dragon, and his angels fought. They did not prevail, and there was no place for them any longer in heaven. In other words, Satan and his angels were cast out. The great dragon, verse 9, was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And again, chronologically, when does this take place? It takes place after the bodily ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make sense so far? Okay. Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven. Now, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. When did it come? At the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lord Jesus, when the Lord Jesus Christ enters the throne room of heaven and receives the kingdom. Do you see? The accuser of our brethren who has accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. We'll talk about that more when we get to that point. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death. That's a description of the church. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. It's interesting, but in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, uh, the disciples, having been sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ, returned rejoicing that even the demons were subject to them in the Lord's name. What is the Lord Jesus Christ doing essentially? What were the disciples doing? They're plundering the strong man's house. Uh, They're out in the world, and they're plundering the strong man's house. Why? Because Satan is a defeated foe, and they're exercising the power and the authority of the rightful king. So they're rejoicing that um, the demons are subject to them in Christ's name. And the Lord says, and I saw Satan fall like lightning. In other words, the Lord is drawing the connection between their um, subjection of demons, so to speak, in his name, to Satan being cast down. Uh, to Satan being thrown down. Verse 13, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The child of the woman was caught up to God and to his throne. Turn with me now to Acts 1, Acts chapter 1. Keep that in mind. And turn to Acts chapter 1. Look there, beginning at verse 4. And what we're doing, again, 
We're establishing a chronology, a chronology of events, and we're going to place Revelation 4, Revelation 5 in that context or in that chronology of events. We want to see, we want to determine where and when Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 are taking place. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, the Lord was assembled with his disciples. This is after the resurrection, after Jesus has been raised from the dead. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, verse 6, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's an interesting question. In other words, is now the time of the prophesied restoration? The Lord Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And so the disciples believe now's the time, right? Now, certainly now, the kingdom, the everlasting kingdom, the kingdom which will never be destroyed, certainly that kingdom is going to be established and Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign. The the consummation of all things is what they have in mind, okay? And he said to them, verse 7, It's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. It's not for you to to know that. Uh, It's not your business right now. Verse 8, but you, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, the church age is about spirit-empowered witness. The church age is about the spirit-empowered witness of the church, the ingathering, if you will, of God's elect. And when he had spoken these things in verse 9, while they watched, the Lord was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven." So the Lord was taken up in a cloud, taken up in a cloud into heaven. When did this take place? It took place after his resurrection from the dead. It took place at his bodily ascension. This is the bodily ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. To compare this text, Acts 1-4 in particular and following, with Revelation 12, he was caught up to God into his throne. This is when the male child was caught up to God into his throne. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And look at verse 29. What was he caught up to God and to his throne? Uh, What was the purpose of that? Verse 29. This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead to be enthroned. Jesus Christ was raised to be enthroned. He, David, verse 31, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. He was raised to be enthroned. His soul would not see corruption. His flesh not see corruption. His soul not left in Hades. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. We've witnessed his resurrection. Therefore, verse 33, being exalted to the right hand of God. What does Peter assume about the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 33? He assumes that because Jesus Christ has been 
raised from the dead, and now Jesus Christ has bodily ascended into heaven, Peter assumes that he's exalted to the right hand of the majesty and is seated, enthroned in his kingdom. Do you see? Being, the, Jesus Christ, because he's raised from the dead, he's bodily ascended in heaven, he's exalted to the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. There is this understanding that because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, that Jesus Christ is ruling over the kingdom. Do you see? He's been exalted. He's ruling. God raised Christ from the dead in order to seat him on his throne. Therefore, having been exalted, he pours out the Spirit. A male child ascended into heaven on the clouds. Here in Acts chapter 1, he ascends into heaven on the clouds. He approaches the Ancient of Days who is seated on the throne and he receives the kingdom. He receives authority. Jesus Christ said, didn't he? All authority has been given to me. And he is seated at the right hand of the majesty, ruling over the kingdom until all his enemies are made his footstool. Now, this is the scene that's depicted in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. This is the scene that is depicted. The Ancient of Days is seated upon the throne in glory. The heavenly council erupts in worship. John's attention is drawn to a book in his right hand. Suddenly the throne room becomes quiet. A strong angel proclaims with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And the lion from the tribe of Judah comes into the throne room on the clouds of heaven to receive the kingdom and to take the scroll. Do you see? This is depicting, this is the scene that's taking place in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. This is immediately, Revelation 4, Revelation 5, immediately upon the bodily ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you the obvious question then. Did it happen in the past or has it yet to happen? Does it happen in the future? It's already happened. This scene is already taking place. It's going to be very important when we get to Revelation 6, okay, to understand that. This scene, when we read Revelation chapter 4, when we read Revelation chapter 5, it's John's vision of a scene in heaven that has already taken place. The Lord Jesus Christ entering the throne room of heaven on the clouds of heaven to receive the kingdom and to take the scroll from the hand of him who sits on the throne. It's then immediately, the war breaks out in heaven, Satan is cast down to the earth, and the Lord Christ receives the kingdom. One more text, very critical to our understanding, and that is Daniel chapter 7. Turn there with me, Daniel 7. It's this text, Daniel chapter 7, more than any other, that is reflected in and interpreted by Revelation 4 and 5. It's Daniel chapter 7. And bear with me now as we work through the text of Daniel chapter 7. This is going to help be helpful to you as we work through Revelation. Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, both of those chapters, and I recommend both to your reading. You need to read through those chapters and um, commit them to your understanding. Daniel 2, Daniel 7 depict four human kingdoms preceding the everlasting kingdom of God. Four human kingdoms that will be thrown down, those four kingdoms preceding the everlasting kingdom of God. Those four kingdoms we know from the text, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Okay, And the everlasting, the everlasting kingdom is established after the coming of the Roman Empire. 
We're going to see that in our text. Look at verse 1. First, we have a beastly vision in verse 1, a beastly vision. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed, and then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts, we're going to see those beasts in verse 17, they came up from the sea, each different from the other. We're also going to see a beast representing these kingdoms arising out of the sea in Revelation 13. Uh, So Daniel 7 becomes really important uh, to our understanding of the rest of the book of Revelation. Now, in Daniel 7, verse 4, the first beast which came up out of the sea was like a lion, had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Now, if you're familiar with Daniel chapter 4 and Nebuchadnezzar and the story of Nebuchadnezzar, Uh, The image of Nebuchadnezzar or the image of Babylon that was often used was of a lion. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was uh, described in terms that sound like an eagle, uh, hair like feathers and claws like eagle's talons. And this uh, lion, representing Babylon, had eagle's wings, reminiscent of Nebuchadnezzar, and watched till its wings were plucked off... (laughs) And it was lifted up from the earth, made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Sounds like the depiction of Nebuchadnezzar coming to his senses in uh, Daniel chapter 4. All right, verse 5. Suddenly, that's a depiction of the first beast then in verse 4, is Babylon and its king, Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 5. Suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. Okay, keep your finger in Daniel chapter 7 and look at Daniel chapter 8. In Daniel chapter 8, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a dream in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. In Daniel chapter 8, Daniel is recording a vision that he has in the third year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, okay? So this is another vision that Daniel's given, and essentially we see he's given a vision of essentially the same thing. This is not unlike, uh, for example, um, Pharaoh. Pharaoh has a dream, uh, and the the first dream that he has, it's of these skinny, wretched-looking cows, and then in the second dream that he has, there's these skinny, scant-looking heads of grain, So it's the same dream, or it's the same vision, the same meaning, the same interpretation, but two different different visions, okay? That's essentially what we have here happening in Daniel 7 and in Daniel 8. Daniel, in the first year of King Belshazzar, king over Babylon, has a vision. He essentially has the same vision in the third year in chapter 8, and we line those two things up. So if you keep your hand in Daniel chapter 7, um, look at Daniel chapter 8, and look there at verse 3. Uh, This is his vision. He said, Then I lifted my eyes and I saw, and there, standing beside the river, was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. So it's like a bear. The bear was lifted up on one side, higher on one side. We're going to find out these are essentially uh, two visions of the the same thing. We'll look at that in a moment, okay? 
Uh, verse 6 then, Daniel chapter 7, verse 6. After this I looked, and there was another, another beast like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Keep your hand there, look at Daniel chapter 8, and look at verse 5. Daniel says in verse 5, as I was considering suddenly a male goat. So here in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 6, it's a leopard. Here in chapter 8, verse 5, it's a male goat. Male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. In other words, he was moving with great speed, great speed. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes, prominent horn. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. Then I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore, the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn, the prominent horn, was broken, and in the place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Sort of relates to the leopard with the four wings, doesn't it? Now, we're going to find out, we're going to read this text in a moment, that the bear that was raised up on one side is the Medo-Persian empire, the Persians being stronger than the Medes, or more prominent than the Medes, so he's lifted up on one side. The ram having two horns, one horn lifted higher than the other. The horns are representative of strength, the Persians stronger than the Medes. Uh, one half of that Medo-Persian empire stronger than the other. Who was the empire then that overtook or uh, destroyed the Medo-Persian empire? It's the Greek empire. The Greeks came through. The prominent horn, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was broken off, uh, replaced by his four generals, so the four horns that came up in its place, or the four wings of the leopard. The Greek, the, the Greek empire spread like wildfire under the rule of Alexander the Great, um, spread across uh, the known earth at that time. Uh, taking, it was like they were taking countries on the weekend, you know, uh, flying across the land. And so the ram then, uh, charging with fury at the bear or the the goat, if you will, charging fury with fury at the ram, breaks off the Medo-Persian empire and the Greek empire is established in its place. This is the vision that we have. We'll, we'll talk about this more in just a moment. Okay, back in Daniel 7 then, verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. The same picture given to us in Daniel chapter 2 with respect to the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, which had feet of iron mixed with clay. This is the fourth kingdom. This kingdom represents the Roman Empire. Roman Empire essentially spreads over the known earth, and there really isn't another empire that uh, conquers the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire falls, and essentially the way that, that Daniel in the vision describes the Roman Empire is with ten kings that replace it. In other words, um, um, ten being representative of many if you will, many kings. So not just one king, not just two or three or four, but many kings that sort of replace. In other words, the Roman Empire replaced by many kingdoms, many kings over the earth, and the Roman Empire in place when the Lord Jesus Christ uh, comes. So um, look at verse 8 then, uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. I was considering the horns, 
And from this kingdom, right, there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, among the ten, if you will. So after the Roman Empire sort of established, these kingdoms spread out. They stretched their influence over all the known earth at the time. At some point, a little horn, a little horn crops up, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. In other words, this little horn exercises greater power or greater authority than a third of the kings in place at that time. He has great power, great authority. And there, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. This is a tin-horn ruler that rises up, takes uh, great authority, and speaks pompous words. We'll see more of that as we work through Revelation. Look at chapter 8 and look at verse... 15, right? Let's hear what this, this, let's put this all together. Then I want to connect this for us to um, Revelation 4 and 5. Daniel chapter 8, verse 15. Then it happened, and this is the second vision in the third year of Belshazzar. And Daniel says, it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. That fourth kingdom is a kingdom that is established at the time of the end. Okay? Now, verse 18, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me, stood me upright, and he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For the appointed time, um, for at the appointed time, the end shall be. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. Boy, thank you. We don't have to speculate too much there. He gives us a direct answer of exactly, exactly what those beasts mean. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. Who is the first king of the Greek empire? Alexander the Great. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, the four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. When Alexander died, he died at a young age, the kingdom was divided among his four generals and it lost its power. Um, was not as strong as the kingdom was under Alexander. Verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully. He shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Who are the holy people? It's the Jews, okay? Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. The vision of the evenings and mornings, which told is true, therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. We'll talk about this in, uh, in the future, but from the, the, king, the Greek empire, uh, there arose one, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, and if you've read the extra-biblical um, account of the Maccabees, um, there's an account of Antiochus Epiphanes and his war uh, on the Jews in Jerusalem. But he, he's a, a representative example of that tin-horn ruler that rises up that speaks pompous words. He's the first, if you will, not the first, but one in a pattern of 
desolators, one in a pattern of abominations that arise out of these earthly, beastly kingdoms that exert power, in particular exert power against God and against his people. So look back now, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. And here's our connection now to Revelation chapter 4. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Daniel says, I watched then. This is in his first vision. I watched then till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. That's um, language that mirrors Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where John watches as thrones are in place and he sees one seated upon the throne. And then Daniel and John both described the one seated upon the throne or the throne room. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. It's wheels of burning fire. Sounds like Ezekiel's vision, doesn't it? A fiery stream issued, came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. There's the picture of God presiding over the heavenly courtroom, uh, presiding in judgment, and books were opened. I watched, he says, verse 11 then, because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking, I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Their dominion was taken away because the Lord Jesus Christ is seated upon the throne. Right? So again, this is the throne room, a throne room scene that mirrors that that we see in Revelation chapter 4, and we see what's going on here. Verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. So you picture the throne room in heaven, and now one enters the throne room coming on the clouds. That's the bodily ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. He ascends on the clouds. The angel says he's going to come back on the clouds, Right? He came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. That's Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. He comes. He's the one worthy to take the scroll, to take the book from the hand of him who's seated on the throne. We're going to talk about the nature of that book, but um, Ezekiel and Isaiah associate that book with judgment, with judgment. And what's happening in Revelation chapter 6? The Lord Jesus Christ, having taken the book out of the hand of him who's seated on the throne, begins to break its seven seals and does what? Begins to pour out judgment upon the earth. Ezekiel says the book is filled with lamentation and woe. We'll look at those texts next week. But um, this book is associated with judgment. So verse 14, then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. The Lord receives the kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion that began then is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass, pass away, and his kingdom, the one inaugurated at his first coming, the one which shall not be destroyed. The everlasting kingdom comes when the fourth kingdom is present on the earth uh, from Daniel chapter 7. That makes sense. All right, what is this referring to so far in uh, Daniel chapter 7, down through verse 14. It's referring to Revelation 5. It's the same reference that we see to Acts chapter 1, the Son of God bodily ascending into heaven on the clouds. It uh, perfectly fits with Revelation chapter 12. This is the bodily ascension of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ entering the throne room of heaven and receiving the kingdom, being exalted in glory and taking the scroll. Verse 15. 
I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by, one of those who were before the Ancient of Days, and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kingdoms, four kings, which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. That means forever, (laughs) Uh, eternally. So although the kingdom is said to be given to one like the Son of Man, verses 13 and 14, uh, in verse 27 you see that it's his kingdom, verse 27, this kingdom is given to the saints. When the Lord Jesus Christ receives the kingdom, those who are his rule and reign with him. They receive the kingdom, and they begin their, their rule. They possess the kingdom forever and ever, even forever. Why? How, do they, how are they possessing the kingdom? They possess the kingdom in union with Jesus Christ. We've received a kingdom, so to speak. He has made us kings and priests to our God, okay? Um, Genesis gives us the, the framework here, if you will. God made the world, gave dominion over the world to the first Adam, one who's made in his image. When God accomplishes the restoration in the resurrection or the regeneration, so to speak, one like the Son of Man, the last Adam, receives dominion, again, exercises dominion over God's kingdom, and it's a kingdom held by his sons, <laughs> held by his progeny, if you will, held by his people. Verse 19. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with teeth of iron, its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching the same horn, was making war against the saints, prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High until time came for the saints to possess the kingdom for the consummation, if you will, of their possession. It's interesting. If you, if you keep your... Well, let me just read it to you. We're running out of time. Daniel chapter 12. Listen to this from Daniel chapter 12. He says, um, is this where I'm thinking of this? No. Look, look over at Daniel chapter 12. Turn the page, Daniel chapter 12, and look at verse 7. Daniel says, Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, swore by him who lives forever, that it shall be for a time times and half a time. You'll see references that way. You'll see three and a half years. You'll see 1,260 days. These references to this period of time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. In other words, the persecution of God's people in the period of tribulation, that period of tribulation which begins when the woman flees into the wilderness and the dragon pursues the woman and her offspring to persecute them, when that persecution begins, the first half of Daniel, Daniel's 70th week, or the church age, that persecution will um, continue to grow worse and worse. The Lord describes it in Matthew 24 as birth pangs upon a pregnant woman. They'll grow in, in frequency and grow in severity, and it'll become so severe that it's as if the 
holy people, the church, is completely shattered. As if the church is uh, uh, unrecognizable on the earth. It's as if they have been almost entirely defeated. Um, and I don't necessarily think, brothers and sisters, that's going to be only through um, like a physical persecution. That's happening now. Uh, how difficult is it to find a good biblical church in Orlando? Really difficult. And Orlando's a huge city, huge city. And so uh, the church, the, the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ is being swallowed up by false religion, swallowed up by error, swallowed up by deceit. Um, it's as if, the, in the words of Daniel here, it'll be for a time when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered. And it's at that time that the end comes. You see? This is a, a chronology, where we are, if you will, in the progression of these things. So back in Daniel chapter 7, and quickly, in verse 25, he shall speak pompous words, this one that grows up, against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High, intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me. My countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. You see, we're, we're seeing different accounts of the same event, aren't we? Revelation beginning here in chapter 4 and chapter 5, a depiction of the throne room that we see in Daniel chapter 7, uh, an explanation or interpretation or a perspective on that throne room scene from Daniel chapter 7. And what Revelation is going to do is going to take us from that throne room. The Lord Jesus Christ begins to open the book to break its seals, lamentation and woe is poured out upon those who dwell upon the earth. The persecution, the dragon is persecuting the woman, persecuting her offspring as she's in exile in the wilderness. And that grows, that persecution grows more and more severe, more and more frequent until the power of the holy people is all but shattered on the earth. And then the end comes. This little pompous horn springs up, one in a pattern, but an ultimate one that will come at the end of that pattern, a final iteration, if you will. He's going to have eyes like a man, and he's going to be wise, and he's going to speak pompous words against the Most High and against God's people, uh, but he's going to be plucked out. Uh, the end at that time will come, uh, and the everlasting kingdom will remain. That happens, it begins during the presence of the fourth kingdom, which is Rome. It began, in other words, with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ entering the throne room of God to receive the kingdom, the lion of the tribe of Judah, steps into the throne room, prevailed, having prevailed to open the scroll, and all his saints will rule with him. So what's important for us to take away from this tonight? I, I encourage you to study those texts and to think through that, think through the chronology of this. Um, but what's important uh, to consider with respect to Revelation 4 and 5 is that that event has already taken place. The Lord Jesus Christ has received the kingdom. He is enthroned, waiting till all his enemies are made his footstool. Um, this scene that we see in Revelation 5 of the Lord Jesus Christ coming now and taking the scroll, something that's already happened. 
already happened. The Lord Jesus Christ has already begun to open the scroll and to break its seals. Um, these are events that have taken place at the bodily ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what we see in Revelation going forward, we'll talk about the chronology of that as we get there. So the scene has already taken place. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, John says, I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb, each having a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to, op to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. It's going to become very important in our interpretation of the book of Revelation. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Awesome scene, isn't it? Look forward to getting into that with you next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you um, for this depiction in the throne room of heaven. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who has prevailed, who is worthy to open the scroll. Uh, who has received the kingdom, who even now rules and reigns uh, over his kingdom. And we, his people, uh, rule with him, Lord, as we exercise his authority in the preaching of the gospel on this earth, uh, the in-gathering of God's people taking place as we anticipate the end and the soon return of our king to consummate in its fullness the kingdom. We praise you and thank you for these glorious truths. Uh, thank you, Lord, for the blessed hope of the church, which is the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, the everlasting kingdom, which, cannot, which will not, cannot be destroyed. And we long for that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.